0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals Podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. Today we are bringing you part 1 of an interview with Benedicto Floin, Senior Counsel and author of Practice and Procedure in the Superior Courts, the 3rd edition of which has been recently published with Bloomsbury Professional. Benedict was called to the bar in 1992 after reading law at Christchurch Oxford, served for several years on the Education Committee of the King's Inns Dublin, was a member of the expert group advising the Law Reform Commission on the consolidation and reform of the Courts Acts, and has appeared in a wide range of landmark cases involving human rights and constitutional provisions, including the tracing and seizing of criminally acquired assets for the Criminal Assets Bureau since its establishment in 1996. As you can imagine, we have a huge range of topics that we are looking forward to discussing with Ben, and so this interview has been split into two parts, the second part of which will be released in the new year in January 2023. But for now, here is part one of our discussion. Ben, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: It's great to join you too. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. So, first of all, we want to start with congratulating you on the new edition of your book, Practice and Procedure in the Superior Courts. Could you tell me a little bit about the substance of this third edition?
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's a it's a strange feeling. It's uh, good to have uh, things uh, come to a conclusion. Um, it's been a long time since the second edition, and so there's been a vast amount of changes, really. Uh, and that's been one of the challenges in, in dealing with the new edition is it's effectively had to be rewritten because you've got a court of appeal where you didn't have a court of appeal and you've got a flow of anything up to 200 uh, statutory instruments since the last edition that have made big changes, uh, introduced new lists, made changes to the rules. It's, it's, it's been quite a challenge.
0: This edition was a long time coming and it's pretty lengthy. Did you enjoy writing the
1: book? Um, Enjoy might be the wrong word to use. Um, It it was a project that was nearly completed or was 85 or 90% completed on a few different occasions. And uh, like Sisyphus and the Boulder, just when it was nearly at the top of the hill, it rolled back down again. So um, I owe a huge debt to... A whole lot of people who helped me with the project but I have to give a specific shout out to Louis Masterson who's a very talented colleague who has generously given of his own time despite professional and domestic demands on his time but also kept my nose to the grindstone and kept me to schedules for producing things and helped me in that juggling of you know, work commitments and the day job with a project like this, which is—it's it, always easier to find reasons why you shouldn't be doing it, and you should be doing something to do with the day job or just downtime rather than doing it. So, uh, to everybody here, but particularly Louis, a big thanks.
0: That's fantastic. And so, was there a particular part that was the most difficult in terms of this this new edition? Uh,
1: no, I think it's 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 really just. Managing the flow of information and trying to reduce it. I mean, you'd you'd like to write a lot about individual judgments, individual rules. If you tried to achieve that, you'd never finish. And so it's compressing big changes and large amounts of information and sometimes very subtle distinctions. And trying to capture enough of that in a line or two or a half line to be able to put people... On the line of inquiry that's going to help them in court, uh, and that's that's the, that was the main challenge.
2: Ben, thanks for joining us today. As you said, there have been a huge amount of changes since the last edition. Could you talk us through some of the major changes without going into too much detail, but just maybe uh, note a few?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose the the big the big change is the introduction of the Court of Appeal and the consequential changes then to the Supreme Court, and that's. A few years ago, now it's 2014 that change happened, but obviously that's a very fundamental change in the way people uh, do business. But also in the High Court, and uh, when the first edition was launched, I think it was Dermot Gleeson who said the rules are like the map to the engine room, and not terribly glamorous, but very, very vital in doing cases. You know, the the whole introduction of, as I say, new lists in the High Court new ways of approaching cases and sometimes with things like the commercial list highlighting things like interrogatories that have been in the rules for a long time but judges feel now that this is something that should be highlighted and used more regularly in order to move litigation on and, that, and that's where I think you know the judges are at at the moment they're trying to balance this need to obviously be just and fair and give people a, a full hearing but at the same time, not allowing everything to move at the pace of the slowest litigant. And so an awful lot of the changes are directed towards, towards that. So you've got new case management in uh, non-jury cases, as well as some of the, the, the lists that I've talked about. So they're, they're really the main things, but there's an awful lot of significant changes in the life of barristers and solicitors just in the ordinary day-to-day running of litigation too.
2: And I know, Ben, you're going to talk to us about some of those in detail later on. But first of all, could we talk about SI 490 of 2021, which introduces important temporal and procedural changes for certain high court default applications in the area of civil litigation? And I was hoping that you could maybe explain these for us and also tell us what you think the implications of the new rules will mean regarding judgment in default of defense.
1: Sure. Well, uh, boiling it down to its essence, what the rules are now trying to achieve is that practitioners won't have to bring multiple applications with an excuse being given each time and de- consequential delays. Each motion has to be issued. Each motion has to be returnable. It has to be heard in a slot and takes up court time as well as delaying the parties. And um, And in very high-level terms, what the changes are designed to achieve is that there would be stricter enforcement of the time limits, and that default would be the subject of a single application where an unless-type order would be made. In other words, unless you file whatever the, 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 the pleading is, then the consequence will be X, Y, or Z for your piece of litigation, depending on whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant. So... At a very high level, um, that's the problem that the courts are, or that the rules are trying to grapple with, and that's the solution that they're aiming for. Now, obviously, the SI itself is a lengthy document and makes changes to a few different orders, but at a high level, that's what it's achieving.
0: In terms of um, case management, how are the work, how are the rules working, or do you think they need to be improved?
1: Well, look in an ideal world, barristers would manage their own cases and would agree things and would make sure that things weren't delayed and all of those things but we live in a real world we live in a not an ideal utopia and so case management has come in uh it has judges now taking a proactive part in the management and preparation of cases that has a lot to recommend it it has pitfalls um the perspective of a judge is necessarily different to the perspective of the individual parties, but it, it was—I won't say introduced—but it was given a lot of prominence when the commercial list was introduced, and now it's been used more widely in other lists too. And as I said, it's been formalised in non-jury cases, cases before the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal effectively uh, has a, a management process, and so. You know, it's it's there and it's there to stay. And, and in the round, it's a good thing.
0: And do you think the the rules provide for more onerous case management, or um, maybe can you go into that a little bit?
1: Well, uh, onerous is a is a is a value judgment a, about it. So it depends on your perspective of the case management process. So if you're a person of very limited means with a skeleton team, that is going to be disproportionately burdened with just the physical attending to both the case management hearings and then accelerated time frames well that that poses challenges you know there's no no doubt at all about that so there are parties that find it onerous to comply with these things but then taking things in the in a wider perspective the courts are a limited resource it's a miracle, really, that we have a civilised society, that, that in, in the Western world we have a civilised society that, broadly speaking, agrees on what constitutes the rule of law and how, uh, that there should be a system staffed by impartial professional judges. I mean, it, it's a privilege that we shouldn't lose sight of that a lot of countries around the world don't have. And that's a scarce resource. And sometimes parties are very casual about that resource. And they treat it as an entitlement, instead of being efficient in the way they go forward with their cases. So, you know, it can be a weight on parties. Ordinarily, I, I would come down on the side of it's a justified imposition or it's a justified weight, but there's certainly parties that have, you know, suffered and you know, struggle to keep to keep pace with the demands. And that's that's always the way with new new rules. There's a there's a whole range of people interacting with the legal system from very competent lay people and sometimes people who are totally ill at ease but are representing themselves right to some of the ablest and smartest people you could find and everybody in between. And so juggling all of those competing interests you know, can be difficult.
2: Of course, Ben. And then some may say that the judiciary appears to be getting stricter on timelines set out in the rules. For example, Order 27, Rule 9 provides that on second or later motion for judgment in default of defence, the court will grant judgment unless the court is satisfied that special circumstances to be recited in the order exist, which explain and justify the failure. But, um, I suppose we were wondering, do you think this is having an impact on the speed of proceedings? Like, are we actually seeing this being enforced by the courts?
1: For, for sure. I mean, for sure, there's a greater emphasis on timeframes and there's a greater willingness to take um, the, the steps necessary. And, and sometimes you have to work with sort of the national personality you have. For a long time in England there was a very strict imposition of the rules, maybe an overly strict imposition of timeframes on parties. And, you know, Irish judges aren't separated from the broader community as a people. We, are, we tend to excuse the faults of others maybe more than in other countries. It's one of the good characteristics, perhaps, that we have as a people. So that's not confined to just people who are non-lawyers. So if you're a judge, then there perhaps was a tendency to you know listen to the account that was being given by the individual litigant in front of you and give them a second chance and then give them another chance after that and as I say the whole thrust of the new rules in relation to default is aiming towards getting as quickly as possible to the unless type situation that you know you might have one motion on default and then if you're having to go a second or a third or multiple times that then the judges will be uh, Will be moving to the to the unless type situation. So um, there are both good and good and bad aspects to that. If we what's the phrase from Shakespeare? In the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. We pray for mercy, and that teaches us to render the prayers, the the, the the deeds of mercy. You know, we all default. All lawyers default. But when somebody else is defaulting, you're you're very antagonistic towards that, and you impute the worst. You, you tend to be more indulgent of yourself and excuse yourself. So, you know, I don't envy the task of the judges having to to listen to people, sometimes giving very, very compelling accounts for why they haven't been able to do something and having to balance the interests of both sides to the litigation. I don't envy that task at all.
2: And do you think, Ben, that you'd prefer this new approach uh, where it's it's stricter or all right, you know, is that the way that we should be going given what you've been saying so far? Or do you think that there sometimes should be a bit more lenience, I would say, uh, for those giving their side of the story?
1: Look, I suppose it depends on whether I'm the guy who's defaulting. You know, when I'm in default, I always think there's a good reason for it and that the judge should be sympathetic to my plight. Uh, And when it's, as I say, when you're looking outwards, you know, maybe you're a little bit uh, more severe in your judgment. I, I think the balance is pretty good. I mean, my experience, the judges, as I say, it's an unenviable task. And my own experience is that the judges, I would say, without exception, you know, are doing their best in a difficult situation to balance the husbanding of resources on the one side fairness to the parties and then understanding for for a party maybe who hasn't uh, met the standard that they require and i think you know i'm not saying that every judge is perfect but my own experience is they they take that balancing task very very seriously and uh, and do their best to grapple with it.
0: In a slightly different area, have the court rules been adequately amended to keep up with technology and to adequately facilitate remote hearings?
1: Well, there's been a sea change in that, which has been imposed from outside, really, which is the whole uh, change brought about because of the restrictions on people's movement in 2020. And legislation was introduced. It has brought in a, a much wider ranging use uh, from a legal perspective, but also the whole nation has had a crash course in using remote technology. So, whereas before a remote hearing or a, link, a video link was characterised by an unbelievable amount of fingers and thumbs and people wondering how would we possibly manage it and how can we accommodate it, now the infrastructure has been put in place everybody as i say has had a crash course in using it and in addition the the law has changed so i think i think it's getting the balance pretty good uh, pretty pretty much right you know there'll be different opinions on the degree to which remote hearings should be used or technology should be used and and sometimes it's counterintuitive i mean i think more junior members are probably at more of a loss. I mean, if you're a junior, junior counsel, and you're relying on being in front of a crowded court, making your application, being seen by solicitors, being seen by the members of the profession, you know, whilst you might be more comfortable with technology because of your age, you're maybe missing out a bit more than somebody who's old father time like me, um, whose practice is established. And sees these things much more like a plumber sees pipes, and just says, "Is this a case or an application, which is suitable for remote hearing?" And I'm filled with joy that I don't have to run across town at four o'clock every evening to to meet a solicitor in an office and inevitably be late because of traffic and uh, you know delay everybody. And we can do all these things now at the push of a button. It's brilliant. Um, so like everything there's there's light and shade with all these things and i think at the moment um, technology has an appropriate role to play and uh, and we're finding our way with that but it's pretty good you know.
2: we seem to be still finding our way ben and i suppose the next year will tell a lot i might ask you now um, what your views are about practice directions in effect amending the rules of the superior courts for example order 63 provides that a master can make an order for discovery but this was in effect overturned by a practice direction
1: yeah i'm I'm not in favor of it and it's that's not to criticise the authors of the practice directions, but I think it as well as changing the content of law or the the rules specifically or law generally, people need to be able to find it easily and it's why even though we've now consolidated the rules and put them between two covers as well as put in the annotation it's why I think There should be an official consolidation of the rules. And similarly with things like practice directions, if you have to start hunting around for, is there a piece of legislation which changes this? Is there a practice direction? Well, we've done our best to bring those together within two covers, but there'll have been things that we've missed. Uh, There'll have been things that come into force in a month's time or three months' time. And you know, in the absence of something officially consolidated like that, which is being amended in a formal way, it it's, it, it favours the big team, the well-resourced people, the people who can keep their finger on all of these things, and it disproportionately burdens, to use that phrase we used earlier, the the smaller team, the individual litigant. Um, who struggles to find that and find their way around the system and I don't think that's in anybody's interest it's not even in the interest of the people who can manage that information because if you're I've had umpteen cases where I've had a lay litigant against me and it is it's almost more difficult and you have to be more careful in relation to it and invest more time in it than if you were dealing with a colleague so Uh, you know, so I don't think it's anybody's interest that you have to ferret these things out in that way. So that's a long-winded way of saying a beginner.
2: We've all been there. I might move then to uh, the review of the administration of civil justice and the review group report by Mr. Justice Kelly. Do you think that will have a significant impact on the rules of court and the administration of civil justice in Ireland if implemented?
1: Well, the, the, the key words there are if implemented, like what a piece of work. Um, you know reviewing a whole lot of issues from a whole lot of pers- different perspectives both nationally and internationally and anybody who's got an interest in this just that it repays re- reading just as a piece of work but the the key bit of your question is that those last two words if implemented I mean we've had so many reports over the years into so many different things and you get a little bit of it taken on board here, a little bit taken on board there, but there isn't a, a sort of an overarching vision in relation which, which implements it. So that's where the key is going to be is, first of all, is there a will? And then the degree to which people buy into it and the arguments that are made. And that's not to say that the rev- I agree with everything that's said in the review, but it was a very careful piece of work, um, an extensive call for submissions. And it, as I say, it, it repays reading. And I, I sincerely hope that it's not just delved into from time to time, but that it's a, you know, it's a fertile source of, of inspiration for, for those who have to change the rules. You know, I know that in certain respects, it's, it already has had a, a big effect. So uh, hopefully that will continue.
0: Well, speaking of changing rules, um, perhaps a more general question. If you could make one rule change, what would it be?
1: God, You'd be, you'd be tempted to say, like, the draftsman who put into the Drainage of Bath Act, he, that, that he was, uh, you know, he put in something completely self-serving, you know, may, maybe a rule that said free beer for bed. Um, no, I, I mean, speaking seriously, I if there was one thing, because it's a pet hobby horse, it's the failure to address the position of people who want to do their work through Irish. So... If I was holding the pen, I, I think we're judged as a society by how we interact with the, with the, the, the groups who are weakest, the groups that are sometimes least uh, on our radar. And the Irish-speaking community has been the Cinderella of the legal system, really, since the foundation of the state. And there's been an awful lot of high-level lip service paid, but in practical terms, If I want the forms, if I want a copy of of the rules in Irish, if I want a copy of the forms in Irish, and I do practice through the medium of Irish, I don't have it. But if somebody wants to do it in English, they have it at the touch of a button. In fact, they have a nice soft copy that they can then cut and paste and start to use. And that's basic fairness. And if we're going to make any sort of meaningful or give any meaning, we People talk a lot about human rights. They talk a lot about rights generally. But if you want to give meaning to that, then you actually have to give substance. You have to give substantive, not help. Nobody's looking for a dig out. Frankly, it's enough sometimes just to treat people in the same way as you treat somebody else. So it's not looking for special treatment. It's making sure that the people who want to do that work shouldn't be sort of patted on the head and told, look, go get with the programme. You're only just an inconvenience. It should be available to them in the same way as it is to a person who wants to work through the medium of English.
2: Can I just maybe stay on that topic if you don't mind? Um, sure. Because I've always been really interested about your passion for Gaelic, And yeah. um, how much do you use it in, in your day-to-day life as a barrister?
1: Um, well, I do cases... Uh, well... Maybe I should start at the beginning. I have the privilege and the benefit, I suppose, of having been born and brought up outside the country. And so when I came to Ireland and uh, felt that Irish should have a big part in everybody's life, it wasn't a loaded question for me. I didn't have a track record of people saying, oh, you weren't very interested in Irish at school, or look at you now, you're changing your position on this, that, or the other. So I was able to just approach it in the way a lot of people from outside the country do, which is it's a beautiful language, which is the historic language of the country. And with a relatively modest outlay of effort, every single person can master it to high standard. It's not dependent on any facility with languages or anything else. It can be easier or less easy in given circumstances, but... It's something there that's for everybody. And ditto with them when I wanted to do cases in Irish. It was a challenge to do the first couple of them. I think the only time I had a, a, a bad dream was before my first case in any language, before my first case in Irish, and the first time somebody paid me for doing something in court. I think all of those caused sleepless night beforehand. Um, but you get into the rhythm of it. Uh, and uh, there's no shortage of judges who are very competent and willing to to deal with cases. And if the system accommodated Irish speakers more, there'd be no difficulty with people doing their business through Irish. You know, uh, so that's how I approached it. That's how I would commend it to be approached by everybody. And um, we don't. Let's not make a big thing out of it. Let's just enjoy and revel in this fantastic gift that we've been given as Irish people and that we can share with a whole lot of people who aren't Irish. Um, like it's a no-brainer for me so uh, so it, it won't be today or tomorrow that all of a sudden the whole profession becomes Irish speaking, but there's no shortage of barristers who speak Irish one to another, do cases in Irish, uh, are available to be briefed in Irish. Um, you know it's, it's fantastic so this is a resource we should be using this is something we should be proud of and accommodating other countries don't struggle with it Europe doesn't struggle with it the Welsh don't struggle with it like I don't believe in making heavy weather of these things You
2: know. um, well as I say if there was some simple changes introduced it may may help but then Ben there is hope possibly for the future would you think uh, with the number of people sending their children to Gwail Skullina
1: I mean that, that's a, undoubtedly a good a good uh, development and but in relation to things like the rules or laws what we really need to get out ahead of as a society is if we put these things into the mix at a very early stage you know if you're working up a draft and from the very beginning of your draft you're you're thinking about accommodating two languages then it isn't a burdensome expensive delay-ridden exercise to go and get a translation If you do, as has happened with the rules, you allow 200 plus SIs to accumulate and then you're trying to translate things and you give them to a translator who knows that already large bits of the text he's translating have been superseded. There's delay, there's expense, then somebody says, why are we spending all this money on Irish instead of spending it on something else? It's the failure to plan ahead and factor it into our thinking. Is what gridlock's things, and that's true of a whole lot of things. You know, the more we plan ahead, the better things are. Um, it, it's just a, a maxim of life, to be honest with you.
2: Um, may we move now to another topic? And uh, do you believe the sheer volume of judgments that are being delivered, interpreting and applying the rules, provide clarity or create confusion? We've seen quite lengthy judgments of late.
1: Yeah, it's it's a problem, and it's a problem which is not a problem of the judges so much as technology now facilitates us in expressing ourselves at length. And uh, it's very easy to have things typed or to type them yourself to prepare documents and everything sort of grows. And I think two things... Could be done, or I mean that that problem then reflects itself in lots of judges looking at similar issues, or sometimes the same issue, expressing them themselves in slightly different ways, and then that's capitalised on by practitioners who are trying to accentuate those nuances to accommodate their particular case. So, so that's where the the loop the 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 loop happens, or the difficulties arise two things could happen one is self-imposed we 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 impose a limitation on submissions maybe the time has come for a limitation in relation to judgments it wouldn't be a very courteous way it would have to be self-imposed by judges and agreed by judges and there would be cases that it wouldn't be appropriate for the other thing that they do in some jurisdictions is judges mark their judgments as being not precedential in other words that any description they make of a particular legal principle is intended just for the parties in front of them and is not intended to affect a change in the legal test so that if they are expressing a legal test in slightly different wording that it's not held up by practitioners as being some fundamental rewriting of the test and spawning a whole lot of litigation but you know it's a difficult one because lawyers ultimately in our system of law is ultimately one based on precedent. And that means judges are careful in the way they express themselves. And that means that practitioners pay an awful lot of time to the words that judges use and the nuances and the differences between one judgment and another.
0: Could you speak a little bit about the delay required to dismiss a case for want of prosecution?
1: It's a tricky one. And I'm going to give us piece of unsolicited advice so all the listeners can treat it with the contempt it deserves I would not be looking at the issue of de- delay through the prism of particular periods of time I think that would be a dangerous course because sometimes a relatively short delay I mean uh, there have been a cases where it's been less than a year has resulted in cases being dismissed and then there have been other occasions where very very lengthy delays you know a decade or two plus have been excused by some factor. So I would say to practitioners don't focus on the length of delay think about the implications for a case, both if you are the delaying party and if you're, you' you're opposing somebody who has delayed. And and work forward from there.
0: And the rules made significant changes when it came to expert evidence and the use of experts. Could you outline these for us? And what is your view on the changes, particularly on hot tubbing?
1: Yeah, the exotically called hot tub, uh, which is just a, a sort of a graphic and a rather tongue in cheek description that the judges gave before there was a change in the rules to getting this long standing practice of having experts get together sometimes draw up a scott schedule type uh, list of all the issues all the items of expenditure whatever the case may be and establish exactly where the parties are agreed exactly where they're disagreed and the reasons for the differential and the the reasons for the differing expert opinion but the rules go further than that changes the rules go further than that they give guidance as to how experts should behave they state in a high-level way some of the obligations of experts. So it's a really useful change and one that should really be on the radar of every practitioner.
0: And we've spoken a little bit about um, changes in technology, but one area that is looking like it's going to be a big issue is e-filing and electronic signatures and how this will transform filing in all courts. In relation to no longer having to swear affidavits, do you know when the rules will be changed to facilitate this?
1: I don't. I, I don't is the short answer, and I would have um, a, a different view on each of those issues. E-filing and putting documents electronically into the system is a great thing, and as a general rule, um, I would be in favour of it. In relation to affidavits specifically, um, I know a lot of people are casual about it. I know a lot of people don't believe in God or anything, and the whole thing is a ritual. But I think there is a value to physically bringing the mind of a deponent to bear on the content of what they're swearing to. It's sworn evidence. It's not like another document. It's not like a pleading. It's, it's, It's something that they are saying is true. And the consequences for individuals for putting not just untrue statements but inaccurate statements in that sworn affidavit can be very severe, and rightly so. So although there is sometimes a casual assertion about it, although there is an off sort of decried ritual about it, I think there is a, a huge value to that. And personally... Uh, any erosion of that I, I would think is a bad idea I think uh, we do a we swear a lot a lot of affidavits is just sort of very functional or our clients do rather a lot of very functional sort of grounding affidavits but every time an affidavit is sworn it's a piece of sworn evidence and it should be treated that way do you know and we should do everything to reinforce that that's the case
0: this concludes part one of our interview with Benedicto Floyd. Join us in our next episode where we continue the discussion, delving into his experience with the Criminal Assets Bureau, as well as his involvement in debates around constitutional amendments. You can purchase the new edition of Benedicto Floyd's book, Practice and Procedure in the Superior Courts, on bloomsreeprofessional.com. Thanks to Ben for joining us, and we will continue the discussion in the next episode.